and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined by Mr. Ben Mitchell. How are you, Ben? I'm gambling with gleeful abandon hither and thither through the hillocks of life, Stephen. Aren't I always? Yes, yeah, it was rather silly of me to ask, wasn't it? Well, we need to refresh one another's memories. We take these hiatuses, these hiatus I, these hiatus. What's the plural of hiatus? We take breaks. That'll do. And it's like we're strangers. We just have to catch up every single episode. It's like we're meeting each other for the first time every time. It's beautiful in a way. As always, we have a podcast crammed with entertaining nuggets of wonderment. We have an interview with Chris Landreth, known for his work with the National Film Board of Canada, whose films include The Spine, Bingo, the Oscar-nominated The End and the Oscar-winning Ryan, his latest film Subconscious Password won the Annecy Crystal this year and is no doubt destined for further greatness. Also coming up is a chat with Chris Shepard, whose animation work includes The Broken Jaw, Dad's Dead and the David Trigley collaboration Who I Am and What I Want, as well as co-founding Slinky Pictures and being heavily involved with Channel 4's Random Acts series. He'll be discussing his career and new projects, including his latest short, The Ringer. And of course, myself and Steve will be gossiping like animation-y fishwives as we inimitably and so often find ourselves doing. That all sounds positively enticing, Ben. Should we continue with the podcast? Let's. Let's. So, Steve... What's happened in the world of animation? News, updates, fill me in. Well, since our last podcast, well, and I suppose the, the kind of biggest news story as we're recording this podcast is the news that in this season of The Simpsons, which is season 25, one of the characters is going to be killed off. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the, the notion of a character in The Simpsons universe being killed off? Um, <laughs> well... I mean, what's the first emotion that comes to mind? Oh, they're going to kill off one of the characters in The Simpsons. I think that pretty much mirrors mine. Yeah. I don't know if there's a word in the English language for how little of a shit I could give. <laughs> I just... I, enough already, you know? <laughs> Oh, yeah. there's going to be a Simpsons and they meet the guy from Family Guy. Oh, there's going to... One of them's going to die. All right. Fine. Just do it. Don't try and make me care. They all died years ago. They're all dead. Yes. It's over. They're dead and weird Simpsons-esque new characters are wearing their skin. <laughs> and yeah, I know it's got an audience and everyone... There's always going to be a group of people that says, No, I think it's still fresh. Good. Enjoy it. Asalu. But crying out loud, you know? Yeah, I think I'll agree with you there. I just... It's a little desperate, maybe, sort of gimmicky. I don't know. Like, there was a point many years ago, I don't think I even had pubic hair, but they they teased the notion that they were going to do a, like, Dallas homage and Mr. Burns was going to get shot. And there were little, like, fake, you know, news spreads in the Children's Telegraph. And it was fun. And it was at a time when, actually, people sort of cared. Like, I don't think anyone thought Mr. Burns was going to die. That was the Simpsons at the height of their power. 
Yeah. When it was pitched perfect, when it was a good idea to do that, when they did the whole two-parter, was, when, when, when the parodies of The Simpsons were great, you know, that was, that was an incredible moment in the history of The Simpsons, which they simply won't be able to top again. I don't know if they, they would try. I don't know if that's the same thing they're going for. I'm not sure if they care, if they ever capture that sense of intrigue amongst the sort of fan base again. I'm very aware that cynically deriding a television show is very much what's the cat the comic book guy. <laughs> like I I get that that's what I'm doing right now. I get it. Yeah. But it's like hang on. Simpsons producer gives clues about character death. Hmm. Blah 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 Jolts uh, hinted that Sideshow Bob or Grandpa Simpson could be heading for the chop, but added that anything could happen in the realm of TV cartoons. Speaking with BBC Radio 5, he said, Even if a character was killed, what stops us from bringing them back? Okay. <laughs> well, that renders the whole exercise completely f***ing pointless, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, the last, the last person to be killed off in The Simpsons was Maud Flanders. And was your heart as broken as mine when that happened? Well, it sounds like it was, Ben. <laughs> it really does. Um, and it was like, you know, that was back in 2000. She died and, the, you know, they made a big, a big deal of it. But then she starts returning in, like, Halloween episodes and, you know, other episodes. And probably has made more appearances since she's died than before. It's like uh, it's like the Sopranos in that respect. Yeah, there's always a dream sequence waiting for you. Exactly, uh, that's exactly it, isn't it? But I mean, let's let's indulge this idea. Let's indulge the kind of the idea that a character in a comedy show in The Simpsons is going to die. Yeah, I'm not sure if we should indulge it because I think we'd just be encouraging them. I mean, let's uh, the 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 list that. That um, was it. Al Jean, the producer, that, that that said it's you know somebody who's won an Emmy has uh, is you know one of their characters is going to die. So apart from the main voice cast, you've got to look at guest stars. You've got to look at Kelsey Grammer, like you said, Sideshow Bob, and and Marsha Wallace. Sideshow Bob appears in 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 like every episode of every season. They just kind of wheel him out, and the gravitas that that character had in the episode where they got relocated on the, on the ship has long since dissipated. It's just not there anymore. So if he were to turn up and die, it'd be like, well, well fair enough. It seemed like that character ran its course in a really nice way, in a way that really kind of... Because I think when he was first in it, like, Cheers was still going on. Mm-hmm. And then a few years down, I, the last, like, really good one with him in it was lovely because they have him paroled by his brother and his brother's played by the guy who plays Niles in Frasier. Mm-hmm. And so there are all these little Frasier jokes in it. And then it sort of it seemed to wrap up his arc. That was a, the sense I felt. Yeah. Whenever the hell that was, 1992 probably. <laughs> and then, he, like you say, they, they, they wheel them out and they, they milk it a little more and a little more. And each time it, it it's all a sort of blur from a certain point on. But... Uh, the one that I have probably got my money on is Marsha Wallace, Edna Krabappel, you know, Bart's teacher, her being the one to get the chop, and I'm probably going to be proved wrong. Never mind. But, like, let's imagine that dynamic. What would happen if Miss Krabappel died? Nothing! Exactly. <laughs> 
the guy would stop drawing the deer. I'm sorry yeah. I had to resort to a line from Friends, but that's the only... No one would give a f- <laughs> From yeah. any conceivable standpoint, there is not any way to spin anything that resembles any kind of emotional reaction. It's, it's just a thing that happens yeah. at, at this point. It's 25 years now. Yeah. They're just yellow shapes doing things. They're basically the characters in Despicable Me. <laughs> Yellow shapes just shouting out catchphrases. Exactly. Yeah, and one of them's not going to be shouting out many catchphrases anymore. You know what really breaks my heart? I don't really even like Homer anymore. And that was a thing I, I just wouldn't have ever thought was possible. But he's not the same character. When did, for you, right, because I've got a, a spot in my mind where The Simpsons turned. They say jump the shark. You know, when did The Simpsons... When did you start, like, think, right, I'm cashing my chips in now? When when did it turn for you? As far as cashing the chips, I would say not that long ago. I really wanted for a while to kind of... And there were, you know, I'd, I'd stick around because, like, for every season, there'd be, like, two or three okay episodes. Mm. But then it's like, it becomes like a homework assignment. And somehow, I don't know how, and it certainly was not my plan at all, I kind of got a life. And I, I, I betray everything that I ever stood for by saying this, but, uh, you know, it sneaks up on you. You reach a certain age and you don't want one, but suddenly you, you're, you're almost an adult and you have a job and you have social commitments and you have obligations and other things that interest you. I've got a lot to look forward to. No, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> because you lose all your Simpsons watching time. <laughs> But that's the thing. You get a very limited time to watch, like, fun TV and cartoons. So if you're going to watch The Simpsons, you watch The Simpsons from the Red DVD. Because everyone knows the Red DVD has all the best episodes on it. Sure. That's the only one you really need. Yeah. So you don't have a specific point. It's so hard to specify the decline of a show. Mm. I mean, there's the expression, jump the shark. But... That's a, it's another term that's bandied about a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Happy Days was was long past its prime before he physically jumped a shark. Yeah, but I think it's it's kind of like the last straw thing. Mm-hmm. And there was no in a way when I was a kid, when I was like nine or ten or whenever I would have been, I saw a bit of an episode on TV, and I'm like, wow, The Simpsons has kind of gone past the point of no return because this is too crazy an idea. And the plot of the episode was Homer goes into space. And that's now, in hindsight, one of the most beloved, classic, well-thought-out, grounded episodes they ever made. Yes. In terms of his development as a character. But that, at the time, seemed so crazy, you know? Yeah. And uh, then there was one that was all focused on Homer and Marge's sex life. And Homer and Grandpa Simpson make this kind of Viagra tonic. <laughs> and we were, like, astonished as kids that the Simpsons would do, would talk about stuff like that. Yeah. You know, and we weren't, like, doe-eyed innocents. We were a bunch of shitheads, me and my awful peers. But it, it seemed like, wow, they're really going to, like, a place that they can't come back from. But no, they just carried on. And So then, it, after that point, it's like trying to say, when does South Park jump the shark? Well, it can't, because... It jumped the shark, really, with the sort of ludicrous premises of the first season. Yeah. Like, you take any episode, and it's so ridiculous. I mean, it's almost more ridiculous than anything they they sort of came up with afterwards. If anything, they jumped the shark by becoming kind of ordinary. 
and you never know when a show will surprise you. I, I going back to Frasier, that was a show that toward the end got very saccharine and very drippy, and uh, I was like, okay, I'm done. They're trying very hard to crowbar in emotion. And that was always way more effective when they would use it sparingly amongst a lot of real, finely crafted comedy. Mm-hmm. But the last season of Frasier is brilliant. Someone said, look, we've got to cut the shit. Let's just make some funny shows. And it's really good. I mean, there are a couple of crappy ones like there will always be, but it was on form again. So a show can dip and it can come back. Like if suddenly everyone started saying, by the way you got to start watching The Simpsons again. I'm not kidding. It's actually like the way it used to be. I'd probably give it a watch, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, I'll watch it if Tom Waits is in it, because I like Tom Waits, or if Patton Oswalt's in it. Yeah. You know, I'll... Yeah, I'll... Well, you were in Luck last season then, weren't you? Exactly. Like, But that's, you know... I'd, and that would be my frame of reference for... It's like, okay, well, these guys are in it, and it's still not very good. But, hey, you know... <laughs> I feel glad for them because I imagine if you're a celebrity and, and you, you want to really have something that sparkles on your CV say, season 24 of the Simpsons <laughs> just leave out the season 24 bit <laughs> like, which season were you in it's like um you're the one with Dustin Hoffman and Mel Brooks and also like um people like Bill Plimpton and John Kay and various other people who have or presumably will be involved with the animation in some way or other with like the opening credits they're a part of the simpsons legacy now they're they're nice they're nice touches i i like them them opening it's a nice kind of take on the sort of couch guys and it gives people like bill plimpton who obviously me and you know and and i presume everyone listening to this podcast knows who bill plimpton is and john k people know who john k is but there's probably a part of that audience that won't recognize that signature and they'll they'll look it up They'll read the news stories. They'll, you know, they'll find out a little bit more about the animators. I like that. You know, I think that's a nice thing. That's pretty cool. Definitely, definitely. And I think it's 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 cool for them as well. I think it gives The Simpsons a bit of an extra shot in the arm. Mm-hmm. Something that really kind of hammered at home. There's a the, the woman who I don't know if she still is, but was producing at uh, Bill Plimpton's company, Plimptoons, when she was involved in the animation for that uh, opening credits sequence that Bill Plimpton directed. So she's listed in the credits at the end of The Simpsons, and she put up a screen grab of when her name came up in the end credits of The Simpsons, and it's in that Simpsons typeface. And I'm like, that has got to be the best seeing your name in lights for an animator, to see your name in that font. Yes. <laughs> I was very chuffed for her, because she's a lovely woman as well. She's been very helpful with us in the past. And, uh, uh, yeah. You know, that's got to be such a great thing to have, have said, hey, I was involved in that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not completely down on The Simpsons. I just don't understand the, the... It's the gimmicky side of things, isn't it? It's the resorting to the gimmick. Yeah, I guess so. But here's the thing. It's always going to have lots of viewers. There are always going to be lots of people who say, oh, well, people who don't like The Simpsons now are just out of touch, or they don't get it. Another little show that uh, we just brought up that came back uh, last week after a longer than usual break uh, with South Park. Mm-hmm. That's a show where I'm kind of... I'm, I'm it, It's still good enough from time to time where I haven't stopped watching it. I'm going to keep watching that show for a good long while, I think. You get a good Randy episode, yeah. they're always good. Yeah. You, I can't think of a bad one where Randy's the main character. Did you see The Shining one last year? Yes! 
Oh. Oh, so I actually well we went I, there's a blockbuster video I swear to god in Stroud and it was literally like, like the letters had fallen off so it was like Oc Uster Dio and it was so depressing but you go in and it's like it was basically like that episode it was all these DVDs on shelves for rent <laughs> but that was a lovely example of a great Randy episode and it's weird because he was so not a part of that show for many years he just sort of became one of the main characters i guess they just kind of realized they had something with him there was a thing i'm gonna see if i can punch it up i saw this on facebook the other day by the way if you want a good glimpse at real humanity be a fan of a tv show or something on facebook (laughs) and then like read comments people put on the postings that whoever it is that runs the Facebook page for this show or character or movie or video game puts up. Okay. This is a poster a while ago um, that the South Park... There's basically, like, when you join Facebook in, like, 2007 or whenever, and, like, it's like, oh, it's a, it's a website where I can interact with all my friends and blah, 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 blah. I'll fill in a list of my favorite movies and TV shows and bands. And all of a sudden... Like, five years later, it stored that, and so now I, like, have all these feeds from shows I said I liked six years ago. (laughs) You have to sort of get rid of them one by one. But it's like, no, I can't. I just like the show and not have to be updated about it. Anywho, I get updates from the South Park Facebook page, apparently still. Probably not after I read this, because I think I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. But this is an example of how you can be exposed to the audience. The posting is simple. Who's excited for tomorrow night's all new episode? Question mark, question mark. Okay. Right. Now, I did, did you see the first episode of um, the new season? No, I saw the, the opening titles, which had created uh, quite a bit of friction. That was a nice idea for those who haven't seen it. It's basically they've animated a, a opening credit sequence in actual sort of cardboard cutout stop motion look. It's quite nice. It was sort of like a, a, the opening of like a children's TV show. The episode itself was about how the government kind of spies on us, you know, and how the government keeps tabs on us and the people. And the, the main joke is that Cartman is the outspoken critic of this practice, but everything he does, he does via Twitter and all sorts of variants on like how you express your opinion through social media. So he's just giving his information to the government while complaining about it. <laughs> and that's pretty much the joke of the episode, and they kind of roll with that for 20 minutes. So I, it was all right, but it wasn't a chuckle fest, if mm-hmm. you'll forgive my language. It was pretty easy to understand it. Anyway, these are the response. This is a smattering of the responses, because there are like hundreds of them. But um, the first one, only stupid and uninformed people didn't like first episode ellipses. I like the ellipses because it indicates I've got more to say, but in my own time. (laughs) (laughs) So that guy clearly enjoyed it. One reply. It wasn't funny, though. The show has gone through a steady decline over the last five to six years. Next message. No, you're just a fanboy. All right. Uh, next one stupid Americans ah ha 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 shows Trey and Matt both have given up on America okay I- these guys are likely by commenting on Facebook 
uh, not to have their information taken off the government in any way or, or by any kind of um, conglomerate, but to be hired as writers for South Park. South Park gets better every year. If you don't like it, go watch Family Guy. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, this one's very passionate. Haters! Exclamation mark. Ha ha ha. I love every episode of South Park. Okay. <laughs> He's amusing himself. <laughs> Things like sometimes people will actually sort of like post quite funny sort of pithy or ironic comments, which I think is called trolling. I'm not sure if I've got that right. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that an awful lot of trolling is like when someone who actually has a sense of humor contributes to a bunch of idiots taking something way too seriously. Well, it's when it's when the wine that uh, the idiots up and the idiots bites. That's when it's tr that's when it's, you know, trolling. If somebody went on, say, uh, yeah, on, onto the South Park website and went, South Park's rubbish. And somebody wrote that went, no, it's not. And they'll go, well, yeah, it is. And they thought that it was brilliant. Then that's basically trolling. Just Oh, so if they do it for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So but if someone says something asinine and you wind them up, I'm, I'm sure that's reasonable behavior, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Keep the goodness coming. Last week was phenomenal. Followed by last episode sucked turtle penis. I like that one because it's sort of poetic. It creates a sort of visual in your head. Is that what the kids are saying nowadays, Ben? Okay, this is a weird one. I'd be more excited if you canned Bill Hader as a writer. His humor doesn't mesh with the South Park of the good old days. How much of a fan of the show do you need to know, like, the writing style of someone who's been brought on? Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I was I was pleasantly surprised uh, to see uh, Bill Hader had such an involvement. There was a South Park... Um, documentary out a couple of years ago it was called uh, six days to air the making of south park and i was pleasantly surprised to see you know bill hader in that you were a fan of his work well i i yeah i, I like his stuff but i wouldn't be able to pick out his bits no it's it's you know well it's like um like i know that conan o'brien used to write for the simpsons mm -hmm. and i think i have a vague sort of idea of when that would have been there was a lovely thing easy enough to look up I'm sure of, of Conan O'Brien talking to Simpsons writers and reminiscing to a large extent about when he was working on it as well and I don't really know if I have a good take on Conan O'Brien's like writing style I know what he's like as a talk show host but there's very little in terms of like oh such and such is writing for this show now so let's see if I can spot his bits. How would you begin to do that? Mm. That was the thing that came up in his, in the Conan O'Brien discussion was a lot of like dialogue gets credited to an individual person when no one's actually sure, including that individual person and the person who did come up with it, whether or not that was the person getting the right credit, you know? Because it's, it's a blur, I'm sure, of coffee and cigarettes and yeah. stress and um you know they were saying how like the the writing conditions were horrible it was a horrible office they had and you work on so much content how do you remember all of that yeah and that's like how back in the 40s the list of animators on let's say a warner brothers cartoon uh, there was a list of like four or five animators and it could have just been one animator animating that entire show but they all got credited anyway you know and, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's a collaborative process, isn't it? Well, Simpsons characters dying. What is the world coming to? I ask you. It's a bloodbath. It's an animation bloodbath. Would you be crestfallen if any particular characters died? Eh, uh, no, not particularly. I mean, 
I, I think the dynamic would change if, if Miss Crabapple were to die because then Bart would have a different teacher. You know, and that dynamic there was between the two characters can't be replicated with any other characters. No, but that can be said of the dynamic between any set of characters in the show. Yeah, it's yeah. It's all gone. No, not, it doesn't matter who, who goes or who stays or whatever. Mm-hmm. And whether or not the dynamic changes, the dynamic is already evaporated. You know. Oh sure, yeah. You know, all Harry Shearer's characters sound like they're being performed by a guy with a gun to his head. <laughs> and you know, from what I've read about his issues with the show, that's not hugely far from the truth. And that that is a shame as well. When when because if he sounds like he's doing under duress, when you've got such amazing characters, you can have so much fun with, like Mr. Burns. You're talking about Conan O'Brien uh, and his roundtable discussion. They said Mr. Burns is the most fun character to write for. So you think that that may translate in the performance as well? Yeah, when they're writing fun dialogue, I think a large number of the overall fan base of the show would say that Mr. Burns was the best character in the show. Mm-hmm. And that was why, you know, 20 years ago probably, or, or nearly 20 years ago, when they did do that Who Shot JR thing mm-hmm. with Mr. Burns, it was kind of a big deal in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way because he was a beloved anti-hero. Mm-hmm. He was a, a, a Walter White, shall we say, of the 90s cartoon generation. That, by the way, is my one and only Breaking Bad reference. I had to get one in. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can stand any more Simpsons excitement. Anything else been going on? <laughs> uh, well, in terms of, like, we were talking about people's reactions to things on the internet, uh, in particular Twitter and things like that. There were two particular pieces of news which had the kind of polar opposite reactions. And one was that uh, Pixar have announced that uh, The Good Dinosaur uh, has been delayed for 18 months after they've decided to replace the uh, original director, uh, Bob Peterson, I believe it is. And the reaction to that was, oh no, we're not going to have a Pixar film in 2014 uh, ah, this is terrible. Oh, but they're doing it for artistic reasons. Oh, no, we're not going to, you know, and, and this was the kind of, the, the drama, which I'm sure I'm recreating uh, effectively enough. I'll take your word for it. Is this like on Twitter or are there special Pixar websites that you go to? Well, now this was on Twitter and it was, you know, for the for the Pixar fan sites and things like that. And um, And they were saying things like, how will you cope? Which struck me as quite. A, like, well, that's a little chilling, actually. Yeah, it's like, well, I'll, I'll suppose I'll just take every day as it comes, and you know, just try and live my life as best I can. Well, surely they're not talking. Surely, when they say that, they're not addressing grown men. They're, are they? Are they? They're talking to kids, right? Like teenagers at the, at the oldest. Well, they're talking to the subscribers, you know, as we as we talk to our subscribers on, on you know, Twitter and things like that. Uh, talking to their followers, rather. Uh, and then a week later, it was announced that Minions, the spin-off of Despicable Me 1 and 2, was going to be delayed. It wasn't going to be shown in December. It was going to be delayed until the summer. And this was the reason, because it wanted to take advantage of the summer box office yeah, take advantage of all the extra cash and things like that. And then people, the, the Twitterverse, announced that this was exploitation. Right. Well, if it is, good luck to them. I mean, the reactions were, were two completely different reactions to basically the same 
the same scenario. I mean, are you telling me that that Pixar doesn't want to to make extra money from making a better film, or Minions knows it can make extra money by putting it at summer? It's basically the same premise. These are businesses, and they want to make money. But with the Pixar one, is it that they've made it and they're just going to wait? That they've made it and they're not happy with the way it is currently. They wish to uh, alter it. So they're gonna, they're, there's work to be done. Yeah, yeah, to get a different, okay. to, to get so, a different vision or, or you know, or something like that. So that and that's contributing to it being delayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't see it being finished and in the can in time for it to get a theatrical release in 2014. Well, well, no. I mean, the the word is, and obviously there's there's nothing real official that that like Brave. The director uh, in charge obviously has a completely different vision to the ultimate people that are in charge at Pixar. And so this film's been made and it's been steered down a path which the the bigwigs don't necessarily agree with. And so the film's been delayed by 18 months in order to alter that. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm much the same mindset as yourself. Good luck, Dawn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Good Dinosaur. That sounds like an awfully lame name for a film sell me on it Steve because I know that Pixar tend to pull good films out of the bag more often than not what's this film going to be about it's basically dinosaurs have evolved uh, the, the, it's like the asteroid didn't hit the earth the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs uh, didn't hit the earth and so dinosaurs have continued evolving and they've become uh, farmers and builders and things like that so they're using their kind of uh, particular attributes to their advantage. So Triceratops is now a bulldozer. You know, it can plough a field and things like that. So all these different animals have these different kind of jobs. And then a human turns up, and it's the first ever human that, that they've found. And I believe that's as much as I know, is that there's this human that turns up, this little human. And so, yeah, there you go. So it's it's... Like, the dinosaurs survive the meteorite, and they go on to form their own society, and then a human comes in, into their their world. <laughs> Isn't that basically Super Mario Brothers, the movie? Yeah, I could see Bob Hoskins <laughs> running over the horizon towards this podcast then. <laughs> I could hear the cogs wind in there, Ben, as you said that. It is. It is, isn't it? Blimey. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, sounds all right. Sounds like a, a Pixar film. Yeah. And Minions is about Minions. Great. Can't wait. So. Summer 2015. Lot to look forward to. Beautiful. Beautiful. So is there anything happening in uh, 2014? Uh, nothing. It's just a, a sort of a barren desert of nothingness. Well, here's hoping we all survive. Yeah. I'll see you on the other side, Ben. Good luck. I don't know about you, Ben, but one of the big films that I've seen on the festival circuit this year and enjoyed, uh, even with repeat viewings, has been uh, Chris Landreth's film. Subconscious Password. Bloody hell. (laughs) Wow. I mean, what an apt film to forget the name of. (laughs) Subconscious Password, yeah. Obviously the film about people who forget names. Ah, you were doing that deliberately, right? Yes, I was doing that deliberately. Good, because... Uh, what did you think of the film? Interesting. I liked it a lot. It was um, unique. 
I mean, his style is so very specific to him. Mm-hmm. Has so many kind of, I don't know, it's sort of hard to say like where its sort of footholds are, because at parts it's like almost watching um, video game animation. There are moments where it's very sort of photorealistic, and then I, you know, the moments I prefer is when everything just goes absolutely nuts. And uh, yeah, he's a very, very interesting guy from a visual perspective, and a uh, uh, big fan of his other films. Well, the ones that come to mind, he may have done others, but uh, the ones that come to mind would be Ryan, uh, which was about eight or nine years ago, I guess, and um, The Spine, which was more recent. Yeah. And uh, I guess this one, Subconscious Password, was uh, this year. I'm pretty sure all of those have been NFB films. Mm-hmm. Right up there with the best of the NFB output. And I have a feeling this is going to do well. I think it's going to paint the town red. And uh, a good early indicator, of course, would be that it won the major prize at Annecy, which is the, uh, is it the Crystal? That's correct, yeah. And it was sort of a, a dead set. There was pretty much no ambiguity as to which film was going to win. Everyone just saw it, and there was immediate buzz. Mm-hmm. Really great use of uh, uh, 3D, like 3D in the, um, in the projection sense of, of watching a film in 3D. Um, how would you best describe the story? When it comes to when it comes to narrative, uh, he does he does kind of experiment. Uh, I mean, Ryan is an interview. You know, it's it's him kind of putting his own uh, specific visuals to an to an interview and using psycho realism. You know what 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 he's called it himself. It's uh, just him using these particular sort of visual tricks and things on on you know the particular characters. So a character's got something wrong with him, they'll be seen as degraded or or something like that. So Ryan's an interview. The spine is more of a kind of straightforward narrative, but using these same devices that Ryan uses, where a subconscious password is something completely different, isn't it? I mean, it, it's a story within a story, isn't it? It's a, it takes place inside Charles's brain. You know, the, cha- the main character Charles, who uh, who's played by uh, Chris Landreth himself, is at a party. He can't remember his friend's name. And so we zoom into his mind, and it's a game show. I believe it's based on an American game show called Password, which Chris Landreth will go into more detail in the interview. But just visually, it's just a kind of plethora of ideas, and the way characters are uh, kind of used and, and kind of thrown around. And now it's, it's constantly visually interesting. It doesn't let up, does it? I mean, he calls it himself, he calls it a cheap look. He calls the film cheap in places, but then all of a sudden Cthulhu turns up and, and changes the, the whole plot. But I see what he means. It's executed in quite a simplistic way. It's, it's quite basic, almost studenty CGI, a lot of it. Well, he used students to, to do most of the work. He's a, he's a tutor as well. He does, he does teach how to animate using Maya and things like that, particularly the relationship between, you know, what a character's thinking and how he should be portrayed. So effectively, it's it's making the best sort of use of those types of resources. Mm-hmm. You have a, a student-y look, but put together in this very interesting way, in a way that's unique within the genre. I mean, at times it's a little overwhelming, and at times it's sort of hard to quite get... Like, I have to say, there are there are moments in the film that took a couple of watches for me to, to completely get it. Mm. But then there's much more in the film that makes me want to watch it again anyway. 
that complements the other in a sense certain things i think and i think it's meant to kind of bewilder and frustrate the viewer a little bit not for very long obviously because then it would be an unpleasant film to watch but enough to have you really sort of engaged with it and enough to have you really sort of get the sense of struggle this guy is having with himself Mm. it could not be a more apt film to debut at something like annecy or any kind of festival or media conference or film market or any any event really where you're bumping into a lot of people because how many times do you walk into someone it's like oh hey how are you doing um i haven't <laughs> seen you in who the hell is this but you know yeah how, how well do i know this person have i greeted them a little bit too enthusiastically <laughs> All that runs through your head. It's like, okay, is this a person I'm supposed to hug? <laughs> Probably not, if I can't remember their name. I'll, I'll give it the old, like, half a shoulder pat. Oh, no, that was the wrong thing to do. Oh, fuck. And I think that he himself... I mean, you had a lovely story about uh, when you bumped into him after the interview. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, I interviewed him in Annecy, and a day later, I saw him and <laughs> said, Hi, Chris. And he was like, Hi. <laughs> I was like, you forgot my name, haven't you? And I just said that straight away. Because of the film, yeah, yeah. I felt that I could just turn around and say, you forgot my name, haven't you? And he went, oh, I'm re- uh, look, I'm really sorry. I said, so you don't have to apologise. I understand now. I've seen the film. You don't have to worry about that. It's Steve, by the way. <laughs> that poor guy, though, for as long as this film is out doing the rounds, and it could be years, that's going to happen to him so much. And he's going to be bumping into, like, you know, distribution people, other directors, press people, people that he's had, you know, interact and, and be like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. And everyone's going to be like, oh, I like your film, huh? <laughs> For two years. Enjoy that, son. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he'll remember the important people. It's not going to be everyone then. <laughs> Just the plebs like me. There are plenty <laughs> of plebs out there, though. Remember, Steve, we are one spoke of many spokes of ultimately inconsequential dullards that the real people have to expose themselves to. Yeah. So don't get down on it. I've never felt like such a burden in my life. Well, embrace it. (laughs) I think I should. Yeah. Anyway, point being, great film. Uh, It's You know what? It was supposed to be at Encounters, and it wasn't. I don't know what the story is behind that. Hmm. Shelley Page, who... um, goes around showing films she's like a scout i guess yeah she works for dreamworks yeah it's like a thing she does called the shelly show when it encounters it's called eye candy but i think it's mm-hmm. essentially the same thing now chris landreth isn't an up-and-comer he's upped and come and he's here to stay and i think he's probably going to continue to make film so i think probably the plan was to just show that film as an example of a recent really good film but for some reason it was in the program but it it wasn't actually screened Mm -hmm. so I was a little disappointed because it would have been nice to see that on a big screen again it'll be playing somewhere soon I'm sure Uh, so keep your eyes up for it subconscious password let's uh, let's go into the interview and hear from the chap himself this is Chris Landreth director of subconscious password talking to Steve at this year's Annecy Festival so Chris could you tell us a little bit about the film uh, and how the idea came about yeah, um, Subconscious Password is a short film. It's 11 minutes long. It uh, uses a variety of techniques that I like to use. Uh, a lot of CG, obviously, as you'll see. But uh, also a lot of uh, really cheap animation. I like going, really enjoyed the 
the opportunity to go really cheap and lo-fi uh, in this film. And uh, yeah, it came around for a couple of reasons, uh, one of which was that I found myself um, constantly in you know situations where um, a fellow would walk up to me and I know his face, but I don't remember really who he is. And he's talking to me like I'm his best friend and I don't know his name. And when that happens, uh, to me anyway, uh, one of two things uh, comes about after that. One is that I, for the life of me, can't remember his name, right? And uh, um, eventually the jig is up and the guy realizes I don't know who he is and he so, you know, my name is John. And then, you know, all the oxygen just goes out of the room and you're left in this vacuum gasping for air and it's, you know, I'll, you know, you try to pick the pieces off the floor and you look at the uh, John uh, and he's, you know, his feelings are hurt and yeah. Um, but the other uh, thing that happens is that after maybe a couple of minutes of stalling the person for time, uh, the name will come back. And when it does, it's like, I mean, for me, when that happens, it's like, great. I, I practically do a jig on the spot there. Um, I'm, and then I'm like, John this, John that, just to triumph, you know, in triumph, like showing him that I know his name. Um, but uh, yeah, what happens? Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, a mystery of, uh, you know, how you're able to remember things like a person's name from four years ago. Um, is an incredibly extraordinary thing that we do, uh, we're able to do, you know, sometimes many times a day. If you're at a festival like this, remembering people's names is, uh, is uh, um, a, a miraculous thing that some people that I know can do just like that. I certainly am not one of them. Okay, so that's one thing. But the other thing is that um, I grew up in the 60s um, when there were these great game shows on TV. And one of them was a game show called Password, uh, which was on uh, starting in the early 60s, hosted by Alan Ludden, um, with uh, guest stars like Betty White and Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, Bill Cosby and Jerry Lewis and Bob Denver, who played Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. Um, these guys would be on this game show and they'd be like doing these kind of one word clue exchanges with contestants and uh, it occurred to me when I was like watching reruns of Password a couple of years ago that that's what happens when you know in our subconsciouses when we are trying to remember somebody's name right where uh, there there's a part of your brain called the hippocampus which is where uh, your brain stores long term memories and um, different parts of your brain, particularly a piece called the amygdala, is involved in trying to ping the hippocampus for these uh, sort of like one-word uh, memes. And when it retrieves that meme, which is the person's name, it runs it up to the frontal cortex, and then you remember it, and then you say the person's name. So it seemed to me that I could put those two things together, the game show and neurology and subconscious password came from that it is uh, quite a, a departure from from uh, the spine from ryan because you do use uh humor 
very well in the film. It's slightly different humour to the humour in Ryan and the humour in The Spine. Perhaps you could yeah. tell us a little bit about that, how, the, how uh, that decision came around. Obviously, the game show setting uh, may be right for humour. I don't know. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I mean, yeah, the last few films I've done have been, uh, have been dramas or tragedies in the case of one or two of them. I think that as I've been getting older, I've been appreciating the things that are not about tragedy, but about the really great gratitude-inducing, joyous things that we are able to do in everyday life. The miracles, like, wow, being able to remember a person's name after you know, years of never thinking about that person. We're, I mean, how are we able to do that? Um, that's a wonderful thing, and I want to celebrate it. And so there's that celebration part of it. That's certainly, I think, quite the opposite of tragedy. But I think that there's more to it because the way that we are able to remember stuff is often very uh, comes from a very messy, broken, disorganized subconscious process. And because it's so rickety, in I think most of our cases, in one way or another, um, there's some absurdity to it. And if the piece is funny, it's because of that absurdity. There are, there are moments of, of humour where uh, John walks past yeah. Charles and he just fleetingly remembers his name, even though he's in the middle of the chaos. Uh, I found that particularly uh, yeah. funny. Yeah, I mean, like, because the clues are all around him, it's kind of astonishing that in that environment he's not getting it. But yeah, Charles, Charles is a little bit dense in some ways. Like he actually sees the word John like on this thing right in front of him um, and he still can't see it, you know. The subconscious part is really good at missing things as good as it is at, uh, at finding things. And it's so wrong that it doesn't often, you know, fire correctly or, you know, in the best way. But uh, nonetheless, Charles gets by and like we get by. In your films, you do uh, employ quite a lot of uh, the Uncanny Valley uh, with your characters and, 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 and work. Perhaps you could uh, explain to us a little bit more about the, uh, the look of, yeah. uh, of your creations. Um, I mean, yeah, the, uh, I don't know if your viewers are familiar with this term, Uncanny Valley, but it refers to the unpleasant thing that happens for audiences when characters, in animated films in particular, are very, very realistic but not quite, you know, real. Um, Polar Express, for example, is a film that people will, you know, mention as an example, or Final Fantasy, um, where, you know, you have these uncannily realistic people, characters, but they're computer-generated, and the result often is that people get turned off rather than sympathizing with the characters, because there is a, an aspect, the, a vi- the visual aspect of the characters is that they're kind of like moving robots or moving zombies. And there's this unintentional creepy factor because of that. So the result is that I think a lot of, a lot of productions have avoided, rightfully so, avoided making their characters look too realistic. Pixar characters, for example, never try to simulate human beings there's always a certain cartoony or stylized element to them but in my film i do go realistic with the characters and i know i'm not trying to make them look like actual people they are still like synthetic characters and i I mean i'm doing that because i want to explore something in the what is popularly thought of as a bad thing the uncanny valley 
and I want to see if I can find something that's actually worthwhile in there. And I think there is in this case because um, I think that in our subconscious minds, the model we have of the real waking world around us is a simulation, very realistic, without actually being altogether accurate. It's a stored imagination. And I think that's closely following what synthetic characters are and what they do. And I'm trying to use it to show something about our emotional states and our, you know, our inner psychological states. It's not quite real, although it's realistic. It's the uncanny valley of our own minds, you might say. The characters in the film, they're not all... Uh, robotic or as 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 bad using the word uncanny valley to those who haven't seen it may uh, have an image in mind but some of the characters dick van dyke uh, sammy davis jr uh, hp lovecraft they're all designed slightly differently and there's a slightly different use of, of each one could you tell us what these characters represent and why each one has a slightly different presentation shall we say okay well i mean in in the actual game show password there are special guest stars during the, I mean, this was in the 1960s, so the guest stars were like celebrities like that I grew up with, like uh, um, Sammy Davis Jr., Dick Van Dyke, uh, Jerry Lewis, uh, Elizabeth Montgomery, who was I was in love with when I was a kid. Uh, she was uh, she was the star of the TV show Bewitched. Uh, let's see, Bob Denver, who was Gilligan from Gilligan's Island, was on there a lot. Um, Charlie Weaver, who was just this weird clown-like old-fashioned dude. So yeah, all these special guest stars from the 60s, kind of like like TV stars. So in my uh, show, there's something beyond that. Uh, The special guest stars are more like what you might call archetypes of our subconscious, or I try to make them that. Like, you know, Yoko Ono is in there. And Yoko... Set, I mean, says in the film that you know she's the matron archetype of Charles's emotional core, right? So I have these characters sort of representing different parts of Charles's subconscious. There's James Joyce in there, uh, who you know he's in there because he did Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, uh, you know these novels that are just stream of consciousness or like you know he pioneered you know writing stuff through an unconscious mind. So, yeah, I put him in there. He's kind of an honorary character for me. Um, And, yeah, uh, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, the great writer of horror fiction, and his little pet, huge pet, uh, Cthulhu, is H.P. Lovecraft's actual creation. He created a whole, what you call mythos. There's actually, it's called the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, with, like, hundreds of books written about this thing, Cthulhu. Um, And, you know, Cthulhu's an archetype. He's a symbol of this dark underbelly of our unconsciouses, our fear of the unknown, of this cosmic fear. And H.P. Lovecraft knew how to tap that and to, you know, really creep people out uh, with that. So, yeah, he had to be in there. Um, and, you know, William S. Burroughs, uh, like uh, James Joyce, wrote tons of great stuff that just came through the dark part of our uh, unconscious, the mean part, the angry, bitter part. And then there's, you know, Dick Van Dyke, Jerry Lewis, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, these are, I mean, they're more literal. They are like the guest stars that I would have known or that I grew up with. So they kind of give a, they kind of anchor the, I think, anchor Charles's subconscious in something that's actually from his childhood. As is, you know, he's, they're one of the special guest stars is his babysitter from when he was four. 
I mean, of course, you've got to have, you know, that first babysitter, you know, that just scar you for life from that age. All of us, I think, have that. And then, yeah, I've got Virgin Mary and Salvador Dali. They're just pinning down different parts of, of Charles's, uh, of what he grew up with and how he has to live today. Talking about Charles, uh, he does look rather familiar. Uh, he looks like he's, he's based on yourself. I mean, what? Uh, why, why do you use yourself in your films? Uh, is, it, is this so you can present uh, a big "I'm sorry" to everyone whose name you've ever forgotten? Uh, is there, a, you know, is there something? that you feel that you can only represent using yourself. I mean, how does that work? Well, I mean, part of it is that uncanny valley uh, uh, problem that I talked about before. Um, I think that, like what I was saying about the uncanny valley, one of the problems with that is that there's a certain element, like in a film like Polar Express, etc., that there's a certain amount of dishonesty. And that's, I think, what creeps people out, is that you're being kind of implied or told by the film that these are real people, when you can see because they don't move quite right or the rendering is not quite realistic that they're not so you feel like you've been fooled and there's a certain kind of creeping distrust that happens because of that that's what i think the negative part of the uncanny valley comes from as i say i try to go, i actually go into that valley in this piece and i put myself in there um, I'm trying to tell the audience, look, uh, yes, he's a C- yeah, clearly he's a CG character, but here I am. That, that is me. It may be a CG version of me, but I'm doing this film. It's me. It's my voice that you hear. I'm, try- you know, I'm trying to show an aspect of that realism that hopefully people will understand and identify with um, that it happens with them, too, uh, through this kind of realistic... Uh, a vision in their in their minds about how the world is out there working, but it's not quite real. Uncanny Valley. Um, so it's me in there, and I like to laugh at myself. I, like I mean, there's that adage that you know he, he who learns to laugh at himself has a lifetime of entertainment. So Charles is kind of a ridiculous character. Um, that's why I love him. So you explore the uh, subconscious uh, in your films an awful lot. What makes animation the perfect medium or the, me- the medium that you uh, choose to represent you know, these ideas? The animation I do in this film is very mixed. It's very inconsistent, um, which I like a lot. I mean, there's a lot of that uncanny valley realism, but there's also some really cheap stuff. And I like the cheap stuff a lot. Like, uh, there's a character in there, Ayn Rand, who's got um, probably the worst animation I've ever done, which is, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Clutch Cargo. Clutch Cargo is from the 60s, like, password. Clutch Cargo has the cheapest animation you'll ever see, which is that Clutch Cargo um, uh, and is like the other characters there all have just single mat celluloid uh, faces where the eyes and the mouth are live action and just paste it on you know where the eyes and mouth should be and then you see this very lipstick mouth you know mouthing words in the middle of the face Um, and it's incredibly creepy Um, but I grew up with that I loved uh, Clutch Cargo so uh, Ayn Rand is sort of the Clutch Cargo character 
in the piece. And then there's like James Joyce, who's really cheap. Um, he's just a, a photograph that's been, like whenever he turns his head, I just go from one photograph to another photograph, and then I have his mouth opening and closing as he starts reading stuff from Ulysses. So animation can get cheap like that. It can get really high-end, like, you know, the, the realistic characters. But I wanted a real melange of styles in this thing to show the messiness of uh, Charles is trying to get through remembering this guy's name. So these characters all look pretty different from one another. Uh, I really like that. I like that you can do that with different styles of animation. Are you working on anything, anything new? What I'm doing at the moment, I mean, I, I divide my time between uh, production and teaching. I teach a course called Making Faces. It's a master class that I, uh, that I bring to universities and studios uh, around the world. And I mean, it's a, I think it's a great course because, first of all, I don't see really anyone else teaching this. And second, faces are, you know, whether you're animating them or whether you're doing them live action or whether, you know, doing them, whether you're, in other words, whether you're an actor and acting this stuff out, but particularly for animators, is that it's really great treasure trove of emotion and expression in your story, in your film, if you, as an animator, know the secrets of uh, how a face expresses, how it shows emotion how it shows speech. I go into a lot of uh, technical detail about the anatomy of a face, but I go into a lot of the uh, psychology, a lot of the way that actors use their faces, whether it's intentionally or not, to do great performances. And I bring my class through exercises that I think really help them out as far as doing great, I mean, human-based, but not necessarily human beings, characters, to be able to do great close-up shots of characters smiling, expressing, uh, showing rage, etc. Chris Lander, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Enjoy the rest of Annecy 2013. Oh, thanks. thanks for having me here. So that was Chris Landreth talking to Steve. Shortly after, I believe, or, or possibly around the time of the debut of his new film, Subconscious Password, I have a feeling that uh, come the end of this month, uh, it's going to be really out there doing the rounds and uh, keep your eyes open for it because it's uh, it's pretty interesting I found that was a, uh, quite an interesting interview as well because it's not often that that a director that we do interview I mean the, the best thing about interviewing so many different directors is the sheer variety but talking to somebody like Chris who talks about like, a hippocampus and things like you know talks about how the brain works in an interview hmm. it's just you know fascinating to figure out where where he's uh, you know the way his approach to films is I suppose yeah and I like that people will have different things to sort of bring to the table when the, it does get a bit sort of wearisome when you, you, you talk to a bunch of people in a row and they all have the exact same kind of take on the industry and the exact same uh, modus operandi which isn't anything against them it's just sort of sometimes you'll get a few of them in a row but it's nicer when you do sort of and I think especially at a, at a place like Annecy or Encounters or really any sort of festival where lots of different types of filmmakers are all coming together like they can have completely different reasons for doing what they do and intentions and influences and uh, you know the, the messages or whatever and it's nice to see like you say that level of variety mm -hmm. if you haven't seen any of Chris Landra's stuff I'm pretty sure you can see his other NFB films or at least one of them on the NFB 
website. Uh, yes, and if you go on the uh, the NFB uh, website and search for a film called Alter Egos, it's a film by uh, Lawrence Green. It's 52 minutes long, so it's quite a long one. And it basically documents uh, the work of uh, Ryan Larkin and the uh, the relationship he had with uh, Chris Landreth. Mm. You know, it's a it's a, a fascinating study of both the artists, and also you can see some more of Chris Landreth, as we said, and also a few of Ryan Larkin's work there as well. So uh, yeah, check that out on the NFB website, which is www.nfb.ca. His own website is chrislandreth.com. So yes, yeah. keep your eye out for a subconscious password. So, very much like this podcast, we've had a crammed month ourselves, Ben, haven't we? We've been up to our eyeballs in animation at the Encounters Short Film Festival in your base of operations, which is Bristol. It certainly is, and uh, very conveniently located just around the corner. Well, just around, I think, three or four corners. It's kind of a zigzag thing you've got to do. But you get there in the end. Good festival this year. Yes, I, I think so as well. I mean, it was my first proper encounters i would say i mean i arrived uh uh, last year and i only managed to stay for a day or so and although i did enjoy it i didn't feel like i got the full festival experience but this year uh, i had a few more days and uh, yeah really enjoyed myself some fantastic programs uh put together and some quite uh quite amazing films and and screen talks and all kinds of, of bits and bobs and obviously that beautiful festival atmosphere that we all indulge ourselves in it's always a little perk of the year although it seems a little lonelier because they've moved it to september we i think we talked about this last year because we did a whole episode on it the november editions of encounters were a little colder mm-hmm. but they seemed a little more bustling as well it seemed more like they did an odd thing this year with the um competition screenings where they had a, a, a more than usual. I think they usually do five or six, and this year they did seven. But they only had repeat screenings for two of them, and none of them, I think, were on at any time past, like, sort of mid-afternoon-ish. Hmm. And what I have found with, like, the, the, the bigger festivals, and the Encounters definitely did used to do this, they, you get a competition screening in the evening, and that is always jam-packed. And it did seem that certainly the later ones had a lot more energy, had a lot more sort of audience interaction with the Q&As after, uh, whereas, you know, the, the ones that pretty much begin, you know, first thing in the morning tend to be a little um, stilted, perhaps. Well, all, all the festival goers at, like, 10.30 in the morning, they're only on their third or fourth pint, so they're not quite in the kind of boozed-up festival-going kind of uh, fury um, uh, you know, you need to have moved on to spirits by that point to really embrace the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, to open up because animation folk—they're a shy bunch, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, you get like a bunch of them together in a room and then scream at them. Someone ask some questions. They tend to clam up a bit. Yes, um, some screenings were certainly better than others. Yeah, there were there were certain screenings where the uh, was like any questions and everyone was like. Everyone's question was, why? Yeah, some fascinating <laughs> films, for sure. Yeah, I think the more avant-garde ones uh, really suffered from that. The avant-garde and the kind of more surreal films were the same in the same breath still entertaining, which is something that I, I mentioned when we were talking about Annecy this year, that some of the, uh, like I say, the more surreal, the more avant-garde 
really struggled at Annecy this year. Mm. You know, in this program, they weren't as bad. You know, and bad's bad's a, a, a terrible choice of words, but they weren't as um, as difficult to digest, shall we say? I don't think it's unreasonable to classify some of the films we saw in Annecy as bad. I think that uh, that's actually quite fair. Doesn't represent the entirety of the program, and of course, it is subjective. But um, eh, the whole thing with avant garde, and I, I do agree that the artsy side or the the more abstract side of the festival programming for Encounters this year was stronger uh, you do need to have a little bit of uh, I don't know, substance to it to have it be of value mm-hmm. one screening that I did not have particularly high expectations for in fact I expected to be mildly suicidal when I walked out was a national focus on Estonia who has brought us such cheery animators as Prit Pan <laughs> the thing is as bleak and acerbic and scathing as his political satirical work is, and his you know, and the the images that communicate these ideas, uh, not exactly rosy. But I was watching a bunch of these together, and very few of them made sense from a strictly narrative perspective. But they were all quite good. They were all quite compelling and fun visual ideas and engaging. One of them was by a chap called. Um, Pretender or Pretender, the pronunciation was up for debate during the course of the week. And he had recently done a film called The Maggot Feeder, which uh, we have an interview with him about that up on the website. One of his older films, it was called, I think, Kitchen Dimensions. It was a little long. It took its time and enjoyed itself for what it was. It was a bit like, it was Fantasia-ish, I suppose. But like Fantasia, when you haven't slept for a very long time, and maybe you took too many Solpidol. It was a nice little blend of of the fun of music and animation with a little bit of sort of hallucinogenic, nightmarish qualities kind of thrown in the mix there. Now you take that type of surreal avant-garde filmmaking and you put it next to, say, some student who is doing a kind of face-value impersonation of what he thinks or she thinks abstract filmmaking is and you could look at say a clip of five seconds of each of them and think that they were the same kind of film but when you really watch the film in their entirety eh, you can tell when one has had thought go into it and one's just kind of been knocked out you know yes yeah so i have a lot of respect for avant-garde abstract i mean the my musical taste probably comes off as ridiculously pretentious some of the stuff that uh, that I'm into, John Zorn, um, One Direction, uh, exactly, very very progressive stuff that they do. <laughs> I mean, avant-garde is a term that I think is sort of bandied about a bit. Mm. I mean, what it really means is is before its time. Yes, and what it's usually ascribed to is impenetrable horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that yes, yeah, a lot of these the, the sort of. <laughs> the abstract filmmakers who aren't getting their dues now definitely will posthumously. That's sort of the deal, I think, when you're really making art, like good art, is, is you really get the major respect many, many years down the line. And then the mm-hmm. people who do very well in the here and now tend to be more ephemeral, tend to get forgotten a little quicker. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, the camp that I'm, <laughs> I'm destined toward because I'm not a Nazi filmmaker. I just want to make little comedy cartoons. So if they do well, that's great. But within a couple of years, you know, who gives a shit? We all have our own processes. 
I'm not going to be appreciated after my time. <laughs> I'm fairly certain of that. You're not going to be around to worry about it, are you? <laughs> so anyways, that was a strong screening, the Estonian screening. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a Swiss focus as well that encounters. And lots of uh, good Swiss filmmakers involved. There was a screening that was just Swiss films, which was good. It wasn't as strong as the Estonian one. But uh, there was some lovely stuff. They had some of the filmmakers there to kind of shed light on what their attitude was and what the sort of national attitude is. Some guest presentations. There was a uh, retrospective Q&A thing with a Swiss filmmaker called Isabel Fabez. I expect not particularly well known on English shores, but it was a good. I think it was more a case study of uh, a filmmaker's stylistic growth, and uh, that was quite interesting because she showed a bunch of films that aren't sort of out in public and there's a point in the development of the early films where she really kind of hit a style and a storytelling angle that works and she kind of committed to that and from then on she's she hit a stride and i think her films have done quite well since then so yes that was part of the swiss focus main draw i think of course for the uh the encounters festival goers who was also the main draw at edinburgh and we talked about it before was uh, Richard Williams. He did a presentation that was essentially the same presentation he did at Edinburgh, but he did a couple of others. He did. He a fascinating interview with uh, Phil Jupitus. That was, I'm sorry, that was really good. Yeah. They do that every year. They do a desert island, pick your most inspirational films. Mm-hmm. And it's always been good, but this was really like... Yes. The best one before that was probably um, John Kreese for Lucy. But it was chaotic. Everything like went wrong. <laughs> but it was good because it was John Kreese for Lucy. And I think it was Chris Shepard, who we'll be talking to later on, did that Q&A with John Kreese for Lucy. But John Kreese for Lucy can just vamp. Uh, another favorite of mine was, I'm pretty sure it would have been for Encounters, was Joanna Quinn a few years ago now. And um, Yes, I've seen that one, yeah. I was instantly won over because one of the films she picked was Your Face. And it was great to see that film in front of an audience and get a big laugh. As with that, seeing all these films that Richard Williams picked, they were pretty darn good picks, I'm sure you'll agree. They were, yeah. And Phil Jupitus as host was like, well, well, what's Phil Jupitus doing hosting this? But, you know, he's a, he's a comic artist himself. He, he, he loves comics. And to find out when he was talking about how much he, he has original Tex Avery drawings and he's, he's kind of mad for this stuff. But obviously we think of Phil Jupitus as, you know, the guy who loves music, the guy who, you know, that's his, that's his persona. He and uh, Richard Williams just bounced off each other the whole night. And some fascinating stories that, that Richard Williams told. But anyway, back to the clips. No kind of major surprises there, I would say. I mean, it was nice to kind of take a walk through, through uh, you know, Mr. Williams' uh, influences and history and see Pinocchio and, and Fantasia and Dumbo and all these, all these works of art up on the screen uh, where they belong. And it was, I, was, I found it very interesting to find that there was a gap of maybe 50 years between the, the last two films shown. I think one was King Size Canary, and then then it was The Pirates. The only modern film that he showed was, you know, The Pirates, uh, the the recent Ardman flick. Good stuff. And, you know, he's uh, got a new app out, which is uh, doing rather well, from what I can tell. It's a sort of, I think it's like an affordable version of that uh, giant DVD set. I mean, condensed, but, like, you know, you can have it on your tablet and uh, 
go through the um, the exercises and stuff in a way that uh, probably a little easier than having the DVDs. Yeah, yeah. I remember when the DVDs came out. I remember going on the website and thinking, "Oh my god, this is brilliant! I'm going to get the DVDs." And then seeing the price of them and thinking, "Ah, this is for universities to buy to you know to show to the students, or for studios to buy to show to their their animators." It was also nice to see uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit on the big screen as well. Mm. It was, and it wasn't. Well, I know it was. The thing is, with with that film, my memory of it is so much four by three VHS. And the thing with like that SD quality that you know we grew up on, us lot, us old fellas, it really kind of covered up a lot in terms of visual effects and. Um, mm-hmm matte effects and masking effects and anything with like chroma key and it was great to see it and and really kind of like dissect the animation but he said something at the beginning of the um, screening that I was really I couldn't really shake after he said it because then I could only see what he brought up was that the animation at the start is very strong and in the middle and at the end they really really put a lot of effort into it but in the bits in between not so much and as soon as he said that that was all i could see was like the 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 shots that they kind of rushed through a bit yeah and you can also i guess when it's so when it's from a print like that and you're really seeing it with like you know the proper grain and the proper level of detail the characters are less in the shot as they are sort of superimposed on top, which of course is how, you know, they did it. But when you're watching it all sort of like shrunk down on a videotape, uh, or even a DVD, it looks more like the universe is one. And seeing it with such crispness and such detail, it it becomes more of a separate thing. You know, the cartoon on top of the live action, mm-hmm. which didn't spoil it, but it made it a different viewing experience, you know? Yeah, I do agree with that. Yeah, I, I do see where you're coming from. And obviously... Uh, guys like us watching it repeatedly on DVD and video and things like that as kids um, on video in particularly it is it becomes a completely different film also you get the gags as well when you're older you know there's quite a few which, o- which gags escaped you when you were a kid well all the kind of you know the the sort of sexual tension and things like that you're just looking and laughing at the cartoons but the whole kind of Jessica Rabbit thing you know how old was I when the film came out four years old probably saw it for the first time when I was six, seven, when it was on video. You just saw it, it just kind of goes past you. It just goes over your head. But seeing it more, again, as an adult, you know, and seeing the kind of, the whole, the way the whole thing is, you know, the, and understanding the genre that it's placed in as well, you know, the, the kind of uh, detective, you know, thrillers of the sort of 40s and stuff. You know, you, you kind of... Your appreciation changes for the film. I don't, I think I was always kind of in tune with that. I think that even when you're very young, you're aware of the landscape of cinema. Mm. And so concepts like genre parody and pastiche, I, I always, they always seem to kind of make sense to me. Oh, it would have been the first time that I would have seen that. I definitely got the sexual angle. I mean, but I was quite an oversexed kid. Right. There was something in me that was just raring to go. <laughs> Magic. Good stuff at the <laughs> yeah. Encounters Film Festival. Yes. Lots of nice new filmmakers to meet. Lots of old faces come around. Lots of people who I sort of know 
from the sort of local community who don't seem to show up to the events themselves, but they're always there for the parties. Mm. But, you know, it's nice to see that everyone's still alive. Yeah. That's the other thing. Going back, it's mainly during the week. Some of us do actually work at studios during the day. So if you have your competition screenings at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday or 4 p.m. on a Thursday, you are kind of limiting sales, right? Sure. Like, as opposed to, say, show them at 8 or 9 food for thought but what do i know well i don't know ben i mean you know you're given a little taste of programming you know with the with the squiggly showcase that was part of the encounters program i liked your segue (laughs) we mentioned this in the last podcast we put together our first ever squiggly showcase how did that go uh, i yeah it couldn't have gone better it could have gone better actually supply demand kind of exceeded supply in a sense of it was really really rammed and a lot of people you know had to stand and had to kind of crane and the available seating was used up well well before you know uh, things were even in motion but as far as i could tell people stuck around for it uh certainly most were around afterwards to sort of mill about got a lot of very very kind comments about the quality of the films which um i can't take credit for the quality of the films as such but I I felt happy that given that mainly our resource for picking the films were people who submitted films to our squiggly showcase it was nice to sort of be reminded that you know we have a really really talented community Mm -hmm. who listen to this podcast who read the articles who uh, submit stuff who interact with us chat with us a lot of these people are out there and they're doing really good work and some of it's for studios and some of it's just because they have a few free weekends. Kind of nice to watch these types of films in a less sort of formal environment. And maybe that's probably what dictated, in my mind, the sort of tone of the programming. I, no, I think maybe... Here's something that I will say, going back to Encounters and certain other festivals, that honestly it would not kill festival programmers or undermine their credibility at all. Throw in a few more funny ones. Yes. A few more short funny ones. I'm talking the ones that are like two, three minutes, or maybe even one minute, Mm. you know? I I think the reason for that, and this is talking to programmers myself, is that people simply don't send them in. Now, when people like, uh, for example, somebody who was in the showcase, Ollie Putland, who did The Clockwork Jerks, I don't know how many festivals he enters that film into, but films such as that, films like Ant Blades films, you know, short, snappy, hilarious films, Mm. they don't really get sent to festivals because people put them online, they see the YouTube clip, and I'm not saying that it's down to Anne or, or Ollie. They're, they're only people not doing this. Or whether or not they do or do not do this. I'm digging myself a hole here. Let me get out of it. I'm, I'm saying that people who create films such as that simply don't send them off to festivals. Uh, and I know that some festivals, when they do receive a lot of those, you know, they are funny, they will put them in a program themselves. I know that uh, the Bradford Animation Festival, uh, which is coming up this November, uh, has got uh, it used to do, uh, and it does only when they receive the the correct amount of uh, entries. They do a program called Short Shorts. It's generally full of funny short animations, you know. So maybe it's down to the animation community to start pushing this as well as you know, as well as this kind of programmers. Yeah, because if it's not there, they can't put it on the screen. I mean, but we don't know. I'd hate to think any festival is sat there just throwing you know, f- funny films in the bin thinking that they're going to lose any credibility just because, you know, it's funny or it's entertaining. That being said, as delegates, you get to see the films that didn't get picked. 
it would take a very, very long time to look through all of them, obviously. Lots and lots get sent in. But just skimming through the first couple of pages, a lot of really, really good films didn't get in. At least four or five on like the first page. I'm like, how could that have not gotten in? These two 10-minute films could have been way more like fitting as opposed to the ponderous 20-minute <laughs> epic thing that I had to sit through before, you know? Yeah. And like I say, subjective and whatever, but there's subjective and then there's just like, are you trying to make a point? Yeah. Strange business, you know. It's uh, also, it's a strange, yeah, it's a strange business. It's a strange balance. And like you say, it's potluck, I suppose. And I just think that in the greater, uh, well, you know, I was going to sort of go on a thing about how when something's really good, everyone can get behind it, except it does seem like everyone gets behind an awful lot of crap. <laughs> I start to feel like Jack Nicholson in Cuckoo's Nest a bit. Like, (laughs) maybe I am actually crazy. I think the actual, the whole culture of festivals is kind of changing a bit. Mm. And I think the place it has and the, uh, or the role it has in the development of people's careers, I think is shifting quite drastically. I think they'll always exist to a lesser extent. As someone who has submitted a, a string of films over a sort of four or so year period, you start to see a lot of them that exist one year just aren't there the next. Mm. And some of them are even quite major. It was a surprise for me because you just sort of assume that that's the kind of thing that will get enough council funding to run and whether it is just that different territories are crueler to the arts than others. I couldn't say, but it seems to be tied in with the rise of you know online visibility and... that platform for new filmmakers Mm -hmm. an example being there's a film that's an impressive film i would say i mean visually more than anything it was called um everything i can see from here do you know the one i mean yeah i think i do nice little mix of mediums with the character animation the layout of the film was entirely with tablets and mobile devices in mind so it's 916 as opposed to 169. So you hold your phone up uh, in portrait mode and that's how you watch it. All right? So when you're watching that film in a festival, <laughs> it's tiny because they can't, you know, rotate the wall. So you have it's it's like the when you would watch like widescreen movies on an on an old 43 TV, you'd get the big blocks of black. Mm-hmm. But now you get these much bigger blocks of black on the side. Um and so you have this like thin strip of, of movie, you know, going down the middle of the screen. And like that was an example of a film that didn't quite translate. I mean, it yeah. still got a good enough reaction, I suppose. But, you know, if you were going to show it on a big screen, you'd want to watch it in an environment that would really sort of cater to that. Because it's a film developed for a, a new era. It did look out of place, I mean, just simply because it wasn't in the right format, which, in a way, would be the true sense of, as we said earlier on, avant-garde. That is, you know, mm. trying something new. Whether or not it works on a screen at a festival, or whether or not it's trying to progress the art form in, in the kind of the digital world that we live in, I suppose it's a question that we'd sort of look back on as opposed to sort of predict forward. I'm sure other people have done it. I think it will be done again. I think that it would be very good for like 3D viewing because that shape, there's a way you can watch a film in 3D without 3D glasses, which is, is, I'm not sure how common knowledge this is. There was a sort of trend in like the mid nineties that began with those books, those like magic eye books where you get this sort of like 
weird wallpaper patterns. Oh god! And you yeah. look hard enough, and a three D image comes out. You know? Yeah. And um, I could never do them. For some reason, they were terrible at explaining what to do. But it was a very simple thing you had to do, where you either cross your eyes a tiny bit, or you make your eyes go the other direction a tiny bit, and you merge a strip of wallpaper and move it along so it lies on top of the one lying next to it. And so then you have what is essentially the same image but modified slightly so you get a 3D image that comes out of it. And that's based on the principle of stereoscopic photography where you have two photos, say, uh, well, the way they film 3D movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two cameras next to each other take the same photograph. Then you look at the two photos next to each other and you cross your eyes to merge the two photos and it's in 3D. Or you, you know, like I say, you make your eyes go wall-eyed a bit, but I've always found it easier to... Some people find it easier to do cross-eyed, and some people find it easier the other way. But it's hard either way if you have, like, a movie that's a widescreen movie, because then you've really got to, like, work your eyes, (laughs) like, quite hard to merge the two images, because it's a long image. But if you have it the other way, where the image is now portrait, you could quite comfortably watch a lot of 3D movies, like 3D stereoscopic, and uh, I think it's a feature on YouTube with some videos now where you can watch it in 3D and you don't need the glasses. Oh, well. But to do it, they have to squish the image. So I think that would be an amazing thing for you know, like new animations because people are becoming more and more familiar with the process of creating stereoscopic animation. I think that film, the, the uh, What I See From Here film, would be a great film in 3D. I'm pretty sure it wasn't animated in 3D, but as an example of a way to combine new techniques... Uh, things like that. There's a lot of new things that are going to happen quite soon. And when you think of like all the the new things that have happened, and I think a lot of it's down to how dry it's been and how many people have been left to their own devices to come up with new ways of making things inventive and fun in lieu of getting a lot of money to create. So, like, you know, you get a lot of mediocre films that look spectacular. They've just basically dressed up a very basic crappy idea with a lot of glitz. A much more satisfying viewing experience is watching something that's been a little ingenious with its visual execution, but it's not like a big budget thing and it's not like hugely lavish CGI or anything like that. It's just like, oh, I like that. That's clever. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a line, isn't there? Well, Mikey, please, in the styrofoam. Yes, that's the thing that everyone I think really dug that look. Yeah, there's a kind of there's a there's a line of ingenuity that a film has to cross before it enters that camp. Really, musings on the future. Of animation and film and all that jazz. Yeah. <laughs> so, in conclusion, Encounters, another fun one. Looking forward to next year. We should do another screening event as well, Ben. You know, if it went so well, it sounds very good. I will say that there have been discussions with various sort of people locally and uh, not so locally, and I think that it will be something that we'll uh, soldier on with, certainly. The best way to keep updated, of course, is follow us on the Twitter which I assume you all do if you listen to the podcast, but uh, it's uh, at Squiggly. You know, we'll post any sort of updates, hopefully within the coming months. Knock wood, we'll have another one, if not before the end of the year, which could be a possibility, but certainly sort of early next year. So, uh, yes, watch this space. Excellent. So, Ben, tell me about Chris Shepard. Chris Shepard was... Uh, he's been around for a good long while, I would say. He's He's been at the helm of a fair few films that mainly combine live action with animation but a film that he did that would probably be I guess the the best example that sort of all animation he did it with a guy called David Shrigley who um, 
if you've ever seen a greetings card in the shop and thought to yourself, oh, I think I get that, but I'm not entirely sure, that was probably a David Trigley card. Um, <laughs> he's one of those guys who's, who's funny in a very sort of understated, purposefully non-jokey way. He just does a lot of random stuff that, that can be funny if viewed in the right light, I guess. Mm-hmm. He's, he's sort of like the artsy type of cartoonist, I suppose. Certainly no like deep satire or, or sociopolitical barbs in what he does. He's just a guy having fun, from what I can tell. And he made a film with uh, Chris Shepard called Who I Am and What I Want. So that was a big hit, I think. It's a while ago, though, now, like 2005, I think. But it seemed like it got like a second wind. Yeah. And was, uh, was the talk of the town not that long ago, like sort of 2009-ish. For whatever reason, maybe that was when it was on TV. I'm not entirely sure. But it's a funny film. It's a nice little idea. It's a guy who's kind of a hermit, kind of a social outcast, philosophizing in a very random, nonsensical way. But it's sort of, I don't know, it's, it's strangely relatable, strangely endearing. Yeah. And uh, I film that I particularly know Chris Shepard for, and it goes back to ages ago when I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and studying motion graphics. And uh, he did a film called Dad's Dead. I mean, that was a wonderful piece of work. Like, that was... I, we just watched that so many times. It was part of a DVD, definitely. And I think it was one of those directorial collections or something. It was back in the day where, like, a DVD anthology would get a lot of views because mm-hmm. it just had so many really, really good films on it. It was at the time of the way it sort of combined animation and live action, not in a Roger Rabbit sense at all, but in a kind of... Um, it was more kind of, I don't know, like Chris Morris maybe, or mm-hmm. um, a little bit Jacob's Ladder in, at times. It was, it was like the sort of combining animation in a way that made things very troubling. Made things more real in a weird way. It got quite intense toward the end. Yeah. It's a very claustrophobic film, isn't it? It's very kind of you've, you've, you're in there, you're, you're struggling with this character, and and you're you're just as terrified as as he'd be as you wander through the through this this estate, this kind of you know gritty estate, and you see the the ice cream truck with the with the characters that are alive on it, and you see the greetings card. It's oh man, such a such a wonderful film. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if I felt like terrified as such but I, I get the the claustrophobia sense of it yeah yeah which is it, something that's not quite that i don't think i've seen in another animated film i've seen variations of claustrophobia and fear being portrayed and things like that but i've never kind of experienced it it's very real he's done uh, tv animation as well he did some work for nathan barley something that me and my dad used to love back in in the day was um the staring competition in Big Train. Did you ever watch that? <laughs> oh, yes. lovely! It was yes. not really animation. It was just two people staring at each other with a boil, and occasionally, like something would happen, like one of them would blink, <laughs> or like a streaker would run out. Yeah, but uh, it was you know it was it was nice. It was and it came from nowhere, and it didn't have anyone else who was involved in the show in it. It seemed like it was just sort of this very. And I don't think it was in the second season of Big Train. I, I felt a little annoyed about that. Mm. It was, a good, it was a good bit. It's made a new film. It played in Encounters, not as part of the animation strand, but uh, on the live-action side. It has rotoscoped animation in it, and very nicely put-together sequences, action-movie-type sequences. The film is called The Ringer, and these fantasy animation sequences are scenes from a movie, a hypothetical movie called The Ringer, that is being proposed 
to a guy who works in animation. He's like, he does like webtoons. He meets with his estranged father, who having seen the, his animation work online, has decided that his son has like connections in the, the film industry. And you can tell that the, the father is quite damaged, not really all there, and uh, is desperate to get a film made. And so he's written these films, and one of them is called The Ringer. And so the son is reading this this very sort of cliched action movie type sequences play out and in his head. And so we see them played out in this kind of retro rotoscoped animation way. I have to say, it's more live action than animation. As an overall film, it was one of my encounters favorites. I'd, I saw very few of the, the live action strand. There was only really enough time to devote to the animation coverage. It just really felt authentic as a father-son story hmm. and not so much the the resolution but what resolution is in real life his other film was in the animation strand you could not imagine a more different film yeah you probably saw this one yeah anatole's island yeah that was like a sort of children's picture book type yeah. fairy tale almost but it was just it was very sweet and silly and funny and and cute and odd it was laden with sarcasm Yes, very um, wry, yeah. shall we say. The success of, of that kind of tongue-in-cheek approach is that they, from a visual perspective, really did a good job with it. It had that exact look, that type of film or that type of story for kids or, or TV show or whatever would have. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like you know taking a children's aesthetic and then being all adult and dirty and, and for the sake of it with it. It was more subtle than that. Mm-hmm. This is quite a sort of admirable thing, I would say, because we were talked about Chris Landreth. You recognise a Chris Landreth creation. Let's talk about, say, for example, uh, somebody else, Matt Groening. You recognise a Matt Groening creation or something that's been made to a Matt Groening style. Nick Park, everything's got the Nick Park look, the Aardman look, which is probably known for now. You couldn't really pinpoint a Chris Shepard look, could you? But you could pinpoint a Chris Shepard feel to a film I suppose so well I don't know actually I mean it's you'd really kind of have to be on the lookout for it but from my sort of from the films of his I've seen I've been about four or five they've all felt quite different as well as looking different you know mm. yeah but they all hit the nail on the head yeah well I mean he's a good filmmaker yeah you know, he's, he, he does a good job I think there's an ego thing a bit with filmmaking as well where you establish a style and then you want to really sort of stick with it and say, okay, this is going to be the the Bill Plimpton look or the whatever look. Maybe ego is the wrong word, but I think having a sort of visual identity as a filmmaker helps ground you, helps keep you focused. Well, ego is the wrong word if we want to get Bill Plimpton back on the podcast. <laughs> I think Bill Plimpton would concede to having some ego. I, I think that's probably the driving force to his success. He knows his strengths yeah sure you read, well you've read his books haven't you I have yes yeah there are passages in his book where he'll like take a scene from one of his films and he'll be like now let me explain to you why this is a really amazing scene <laughs> <laughs> or why the, and you know and then, but then he'll do another he'll take another bit of, of possibly the same film and be like now let me tell you why this was terribly misjudged and why I should have done this differently and that's the difference like that's yeah. how you know you're dealing with someone who's actually like they're not they don't think that you know they're they can do no wrong they're very aware of that they can do wrong but they're also aware that they can do right yeah and that takes some ego they don't believe their own hype yeah well 
But they're happy to bask in it a little bit when it, when when appropriate. When they know how much work has gone into something, and they can say, "This is something I can feel proud of." Whereas, you know, alternatively, yeah. you just sort of knock something out, and everyone says it's great. Some people will believe that and believe that about themselves, and other people with a little bit more strength of character will be like, "Ha, huh, mm. let's uh, let's really assess this. Where is this coming from? Is this just being said for the sake of, of saying it?" You can't grow as an artist without... This is why sometimes I get concerned about... You see like someone who does like a really, really good student film or like a really good first film with a studio and it like does so well, it wins all the awards, it's at every festival, and then you'd never hear from them again. It's not that common, but it has happened a few times in the last six or seven years. I've, I've seen it and I've waited for you know, the next film and th- the problem is how do you top how do you peak with your first film you can't top it again mm-hmm. whereas the filmmakers who really go on to have a long career a career with real you know longevity are the ones who they start with something that does modestly well and then they build on that and then the next thing does well and then then they do something that does really well and then maybe something that doesn't do as well and it's it's kind of, it's not a straight line it's not like starting at the top and then going down it's a happy natural organic process nothing's being forced Mm-hmm. Anywho, back to Chris Shepard, who uh, is quite busy at the moment. He's involved uh, in quite a heavy way with Random Acts, which is the, uh, the, the I would say this season, very strong uh, outlet for new animation commissioned through Channel 4. Um, more so than the first year, I think there have been some really, really polished pieces of work. He's working at the moment with uh, 12 Foot 6, and uh, a comedy troupe uh, for Channel 4's Comedy Blaps. It's a comedy troupe called... Um, hang on. The Alternative Comedy Memorial Society. That's the one. Um, <laughs> yes, a busy fellow. So why don't we uh, turn it over to him. This is Chris Shepard chatting with us at this year's Encounters Festival. We have a couple of film screenings yeah. for this festival. Yeah, I have two films on. Uh, one which is... Um, uh, called Anatole's Island, which is an animated film, which is uh, co-directed with Mia Nasri, and uh, as the voice, uh, Pisa Salvanovich is the, is the narrator, the voice, the voiceover, and uh, I produced it with Lupus, and with Bruce Fielding and Lupus, and um, I'm Robert Popper, who does Friday Night Dinner and, and so forth. Yeah. So you have a bit of a, a relationship with Lupus as well, with Random Acts. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a bit about what your involvement is with that? Yeah, well, Vandermax, the last two years, I've done sort of, um, I've curated and produced uh, films, you know, for Vandermax. It's been really exciting because I've, uh, over the last two years, I'm like, I think people think I'm probably like a total headcase, but, um, but I've sort of uh, curated and produced 61 films over two years. So I've sort of uh, done mountains and mountains of stuff. It's been really exciting because I think because of the length of Vandermax, we could be in like one to three minutes. It's been something whereby it's, um, it, you know, they're short. So anyway, it's like, uh, they're like sketches or they're, they're like, if you make a big film, like 15 minute film, it might take you like two years or whatever, you know, you know, and it becomes a big expression. But I love Vandermax because it's more like, the, they're just like moments, like, you know, like sketches or... 
uh, you know, and I think that's that's you know, it's really quite refreshing that it's not like a big heavy things. People can experiment and try stuff out. It seems like it's filled with what had been a bit of a void, certainly in terms of like the memory of Channel Four and its relationship with animation, how strong it was back in the day. And uh, that seemed to kind of drift off a bit, and I think it's, it's been a really good way of bringing that back. Yeah, I, uh, when I first did animation, when I first started an animation, the first time I got commissioned my channel for, uh, you know, there was a lot of funding there. It was Claire Kitson's days, it was about a golden period of animation. And I was very lucky to sort of do, did a film called The Broken Jewel, which was, uh, you know, uh, which, was, which was great because it was all funded and, you know, and I spent a year making it. And it was, the technology was different then, so it took longer to make things, but, but it, was, it was great. But I think in a way, yeah, Random Access was going back to that in a way, or just this idea of having the, the freedom to, to, to take risks and to try to do make things that would be different. And, uh, and I think that's totally refreshing, isn't it? Because they like little... What's really exciting, I think, now is, it's like what uh, I've noticed that you know, people make films, they go on and do other things, like, uh, you know, like Rick's wish list, great, and, um, and he's, just, he's just done an advert, you know, on the back of it, and, and I love Gelato Go, Gelato Go Home, you've seen that one, like, that, that is, that's beautiful, I mean, I read that and I went, oh my god, ice cream bands, I love ice cream bands. I've got one in Jack's Dead, this is the thing I do. And I've always been obsessed by ice cream bands. And I sort of read that script and went, oh my god, we're just gonna do it, got it. I was so excited. And the end result is so that gives me real joy looking at this stuff. Because fundamentally, I make films, but I sort of quite like watching other people's more. So I do like also do a film club in London called Bar Shorts. And and I, I enjoy watching other people's films, really, you know, instead of it being um, all about me, because I was much more interested in this. Well, it's great just to see what else is going on and take inspiration and just sort of be entertained. Yeah. Yeah. When there's so much out there and you have access to, you know, that kind of first hand access almost to all this influx of new talent that's coming yeah. in and new ideas. That's it. You can disappear into your own bubble, but you know, it is good to always see the next generation of people and what's going on. And we were talking about technology. I remember I was doing some, doing some teaching at Kingston, and the students there were all like just saying, just shooting stuff, just getting small cameras, 70s, 50s, just shooting stuff. And I felt so inspired by it. I and then I shot this uh, a film called Grace Petrie Vines uh, for Channel 4. And I shot that and I just did it with a little camera. And, then, and I think in a way, yeah, you've got to be open-minded to what's going on because, um, because the world has changed a lot, you know, since it's started. You were involved in the animated yeah, I got commissioned by them, yeah. Does that still exist in any form at this point? Yeah, anime pro it's anime projects now. It used to be Dick Arnold. Um, but I really miss Dick Arnold. He was a good friend. And um, the last time I saw him before he died was here, actually, in uh, 2007. And, uh, you know, he, once again, he was a real maverick, wasn't he? And a uh, great man. And um, I was sort of... Um, Gary Thomas and Abigail Addison have sort of kept um, anime going. It's anime projects now. And they've just done five films for, uh, for Random Acts. 
and I think they're on TV any minute now, really. So, so they're, so they're, so they're keeping it going. So I think it's important to have that space for, for um, you know, something a bit more unusual, something a bit more left field. You know, so. Um, do you find that unusual and left field is your kind of speed? Do you think the, if you're producing something for a particular type of scheme and they want it to be a little out there, does that help with your creative process? I don't know. No, but I just sort of just take like if I direct or produce. You know, I just think about what the story is, and you know, with directing, I think about what the story is, and that's my main uh, criteria. I don't really think about it being left field or. And it's the same with producing, when, I, when I'm producing and working with people, you know, I just look at what they want to do and look about and then, you know, help them try to achieve it, you know. Uh, so sometimes it can be quite, I don't know, it's, it, that's one for the audience, it'd be left field, isn't it? I mean, they just tell the story and then it's up to them, isn't it? The first film I saw of yours knowingly uh, was Dad's Dead back in the day, it's been about 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that being huge at the time. It was, yeah, it was, it was mad. And that was quite, it had been done before, that fusion of, of live action and animation, but not to the degree of, of, there was something about seeing it in that film, the way it kind of really contributed to the atmosphere and really sort of contributed to the story and the humour as well. Um, and the, I mean, at that time, you'd have a better take on the body. What was the sort of attitude, I guess, to like mixing live action and animation for storytelling purposes? I suppose in a way, I'd gone to art college, and I was very aware in my mind that a lot of the films were very like middle class. You know, like they'd be like sort of like. Um, I don't want to diss, diss the other films, or the people's films, because, you know, they're all, they're just, they're, a lot of the films were about princesses or in towers getting rescued by princes, or it'd be like, um, uh, or it'd be, um, you know, like a blobby man crossing the desert with a dragon and a rock behind him, or, you know, they'd be very poetic and big, and I suppose every man uh, scenarios. And I suppose in the way I kept thinking, you know, I, I wanted to show my landscape where I grew up in Liverpool. I wanted to show that on on on, um, on film, and and at the same time, I wanted it to be po uh, poetic. You know, I wanted it to be the beautiful side, even in the darkness, it's beautiful. So in a way, I wanted to tell a story about uh, you know about my environment really. And um, I did a film before called The Broken Jaw. It was, it was very cartoony, and I wanted to make some of the felt real. You know, more about memory and. So I did it very instinctively, and what I did was, it was I did six shoots over a year, uh, five, six shoots, and then uh, I'd do a shoot and then edit, then do some animation, and then do another shoot, and then edit, and do some animation, do another shoot, and that. And so what I did was, with that film, I built it up like a painting, and, uh, and I suppose I wanted it to be a bit like a um, Francis Bacon painting, you know? Yeah. Um, um, and it was one of my references but I, I tried to build it up and I think that's why as a film when you move through it it flows through it sort of has a feeling that it's I don't know it does feel like you're flowing through a story somehow and I think that's because I've built it up in layers do you know what I mean and it's not like I, I did storyboard it but I've not storyboarded it and stuck to it like there were some sections in it where it was black you know uh, but, but I didn't know what it was until the very end you know I didn't know that the bit with the fire I didn't know how I was going to play that until the very end and uh, so in a way I was sort of so you kind of take cues from your own content 
But it was just built up like that, and then it was a lot of the footage. I shot some of the footage like two years before, three years before I did the film, in an old tower block, and um, you know, and I comped the characters into that. And it was, yeah, it was. It's, it's quite a long time ago now, but I, I sort of um, it was a good thing to do. I think because I did it in that way, like the painting. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like um, storyboarded or. And it's like all the films I've done, <laughs> each one has had a completely different sort of process from the next. That one was quite different from all the others. Because you can't, you don't normally get the chance to do that, do you? No, I guess, especially in, in film, and, and people will want to see what, a representation of the end product at the, the very early stage. Um, so yeah, they have that kind of freedom to sort of play with it, like, uh, like writing a book or a painting. Like I, I always had the voice, though. I always had that voice with Ian, and that was like the backbone of it. So I always had that as the guy, as the the, the the backbone. So I could always sort of, you know, I could experiment, but that would always bring me back to the story. But even that, I recorded the the voiceover about ninety eight, ninety nine, and I was so terrified of what I'd done. I stuck it in the drawer. I stuck it in the cupboard. Shut the door on it. And just I was scared of it because it was so dark. Right. Because I'm not really a dark person. <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, but it was a good story, you know. So, but then I got the money, then I got some funding from Animate. And then, like, three years later, or two years later, I got this recording back out and then made the film just great. Now, what was it like listening to the recording again after that time? Was it less. Did it freak you out less? Well, I think it was freaking me out because it was more to do with that I'd done a lot of comedy. And so it was like quite a departure maybe I was scared of that I don't know at the time but Ian's performance was amazing and it was quite interesting when you do voiceovers for animation quite often you'll get like actors in and they're voiceover actors and they're good at they do things a certain way you know and they're brilliant uh, but with Ian I remember him being in the booth and I always remember there was one bit where I uh, I said to him through the booth I said, oh, do, it, do the old man with an Irish accent or something and he just went no 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 be quiet, be quiet. And he went, just, just sitting there like, I don't know, like this, to himself. And I'm like, run it, run it now, run it now. And we ran it, and it was like, it was electric. Because he'd put himself into the room, you know, he'd really, it wasn't like somebody using their voice a certain way to get, uh, to do, you know, something. It was Ian, he's such a good actor. He'd absolutely put himself in the room with the fire, with the old man. And I think if you listen to that voiceover, if you, you know, if you listen to it more, you can hear Ian's voice, tre the tremor in his voice, and it's real, it's something else. He's, I think he is one of the greatest British actors ever, Ian Hart, so he's one of my favourites. So, uh, subsequent to Dad's death, was it quite shortly after that you were working with uh, David Shrigley? It was, well, I did, um, well, the weird thing was with, with Dad's death was, was that I, as well, was that I'd made a film I suppose I wanted everybody to hate. But then everybody loved it, so I was a bit perplexed by that. So suddenly I became very popular, and I think that was the, I think that's a bit of a tale for people is, is that, you know, you're best to be yourself. If you can be yourself, people notice, I think, you know, and uh, and so I was quite popular at that point. But but, but the thing is, with who I am and what I want was that I'd, I read one of David's books in about '97, '98, and David Shigley wasn't famous then. And I, and I said, oh God, it was called Why We Got the Sack from the Museum. 
And it's a great book. And I, and I got so announced it's the common room in sixth form. They draw in like pictures, we pictures on the walls. And uh, and his books are just like those pictures to me, those drawings. And so I just looked at them and went, wow. And I met up with David. And then we spent like four or five years trying to think of an idea. And we just kept bouncing ideas back and forth. And it was because I did Big Train around, around 98, which was like a black and white animation. We talked about it, we thought we could do a black and white uh, animation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like a black and white animation. So we then me then David came to me uh, about two, I don't know when it was now about 2004. and done this book, and it was called Who I Am and What I Want. And the interesting thing with it was, I mean, what made, makes Dave's stuff hard to um, adapt for story, for film is that normally his books each page is a, is a different character, different story. So you know, there's no like through narrative. But the different thing with Who I Am and What I Want was. Was that it was about one person, it was like a diary. So therefore you had this like sort of backbone there. And then I sort of worked on the script with him and then I put in the, the forest, you know, to give it like beginning and an end. I said, oh, that's not in the book. Well, at least not in that fashion. And we had to sit it down and um, you made it. And then, you know, it's a great, it's got a real energy about it, that film. That was, that was also, seeing the film really kind of was the talk of the town here a few years after it was made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was funny because quite often I do more than one film at once. Uh, I did Silence is Golden and Who I Am and What I Want at the same time. And um, so I did Who I Am and then I was still on Silence is Golden, but it was very popular. I remember there was some great screening. It was shown in the zoo in Holland. Shown in bizarre, really great places, you know, really, it was sort of, um, yeah, and I really, you know, the, Pete's character in that is great because he's an everyman character, I think it's something that everybody can identify to, isn't it? But people get very angry about it, you look on online as well, people get outraged, and it, it, it sort of makes people go a bit mad, which is fun, you know? I think that's sort of the type of, of thinking about, like, the art of David Trigley. There's something kind of divisive about that as well. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe it's a, it's a similar kind of reaction. Because aesthetically, it can seem like one thing, and then to get it, you have to be in a certain kind of space, perhaps. And some people just don't have that kind of sense of humour, and sometimes some things seem very sort of obvious and literal in terms of their humour. And then some stuff is kind of really conceptual, and you'll be thinking about it like two days later and start chuckling to yourself. And I think the film does, you two working together, I think the film captures that. Yeah, it's very dense, isn't it? Very dense. And then Kevin did the voice, Kevin Eldon. Yeah. And Kevin played it really well. He did it like, like an academic who was pretending to be normal. I mean, that was the brief. He said to just, just do it like, like you're an academic. And you're holding it in, you know, you're not like mad. You're sort of... And I think it's really hilarious because of that. Because it's just like, oh, you know. But it's... Um, I'm very proud of who I am. It's sort of... Um, and people, you know, it's just... But once again, it's about telling the story, and I tend to just tell the story, and then after that, you know, I just let people, you know, talk to, talk to the audience. And I saw another David Trigley animation a few years ago. Was I think in defence of the arts council? Oh yeah. No, well one of the animators um, who worked on Who I Am and What I Want is called James Newport. And after Who I Am, um, Dave, uh, Dave just gets James to do a lot of his animation works with him. 
So all of the stuff you'll see in the Hayward Gallery uh, was animated by Dave. And we also did five random acts. So it was animated by James, James Newport. And he did all. We did five random acts, including have you seen thirteen. Yes. Was last year or this year? Last year, yeah, that was I think funny. They, they that yeah, yeah, that was funny. Wasn't it? That was really funny. I mean, that, yeah, James animated that. So James Newport is really, he's really great, uh, great animator, and director in his own way. Are there any other like favorite random acts that you've seen? Oh, it's hard to pick favourites, I shouldn't really, but they're all great, you know, I mean, uh, I love Griff's film, that's a great film, I love, you know, and I think uh, Jock and Alistair's Gelato Go Home is beautiful, uh, I think what's, Rebecca Manley's I really like with the, with the puppets, it's got terrible manners, I think that was on last week, I think, um, oh, let me think, there's so many, isn't there, what really... I mean, you know, I really love um, uh, Phoebe, uh, Phoebe Halstead and um, Angie Phillips's Derek and His Shells. Have you seen that one? A documentary about a man who, who lives in the caravan and collects shells. That's absolutely lovely. It's really, really nice. So do you think it's going to go for a third year? Well, we have to see what happens, but I think, I think it's... Um, they're just um, we're just finishing series two now, but we've got to go and see them again. And, and uh, but we've done them. Um, uh, yeah, we're just doing the last two now. One of which I've directed, which is called Life Class, which is about a um, a life drawing class in a in a in a, in a polytechnic or in a, in a sort of university, and it's, uh, designed by Jim James Jim Medway, and he, he's believed he's in Manchester. Um, illustrating stuff's amazing and, um, and then 12 foot 6 have done one with Bastard Bunny do you know Bastard Bunny it's a cartoon strip and um, it's that, they're the last two so will they be on like early next year or under this year well we're going to deliver them next week so I reckon they'll be on next month or very soon so, um, you know, they'll be on, normally they get transmitted quite quick. There's one outstanding film that's not being transmitted. It's Channel 4 saving it for Halloween. Oh, is that Robert? Uh, Robert Morgan's Invocation. Have you seen that? Lovely stuff. That's amazing. It's really... I can't wait for people to see that. I mean, I used to teach in Farnham for a bit, for one term I went in. And Rob, Robert was there as a student. And he did the man in the lower left-hand corner of the picture. And that was, that, you know, and even then he remembered buying maggots and he's going to put them on the, uh, on the bed and all this. And, and, then, and then I produced, but I was the producer for the Momi scheme for six years as well. And I developed uh, the cat with hands. So, and that was funny. I met this taxidermist and he got like, he cast all children's hands and put them on a cat's body. And that was crazy, but great. I mean, that was always... You could always see that was going to be a classic, you know, even. Um, your new film, Hayward Gallery, which is playing quite shortly, uh, uh, The Ringer, yeah. I watched it yesterday, it's really, really nice. It's again live action with animation. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's a funny film because it's sort of... Man, when I was a kid, my dad ran off, and I never met my dad until I was 38. And... Um, and anyway, it's sort of ins, ins, it's inspired from that that event, 
I mean, it's not uh, a portrayal of it's not reality. It's not you know, it's, but it is fiction. But I like to say to the audience that you know, there's elements of it that are real, elements that are not. But it's fiction. But I mean, it's up for the it's up to the audience to try and figure out what <laughs> what it's all about. But I um, but it's. I mean, because uh, I've only just finished it. I've never seen it with an audience. It's the first time I've ever seen it with an audience. So um, it's hard to know what I, I, you know. I don't know quite know what to say about it. In a way, it's sort of. Um, I suppose, in a way, it's about reconciliation, isn't it? Trying to reconcile, you, you know, uh, get close to, to your, your father you've never met. It's about reconciliation, but it's also in my mind it's sort of a bit about dreams as well because I think it's all, almost about the um, the dream of wanting to go to Hollywood, the dream of wanting to make a big feature film, and, and holding on to that in a very tenuous way. Yeah. Uh, and the rationalisation that father's done about like, you know, why but it's just that thing he only but he just wants to communicate with them. It's, it's and I suppose as well as I get get older and do I sort of find my films are they're not as harsh. I mean, it's a different sort of story from Dad's Dead, say or Silence is Golden. But in a way, I didn't want anybody to be. I, mean, I tend to do that in my films as well. I don't want anybody to be good or bad. Or, I mean, everybody, all the characters have their merits, don't they? This, the son's just as much of a loop, you know. He's messed things up, isn't he himself? Along, you know, same as um, the dad has. So um, they're just trying to communicate to each other, aren't they? Really? The animated really, really nice sort of, I guess, uh, pastiche or homage, I guess, to this very specific type of, like, uh, rock, like, gangster heist type film. Is that a genre you're a fan of? Well, I suppose in a way it was, like, ironic. I did it out of irony. It was something I never would have done in a million years. Did car chase, prostitutes getting shot, gunfire. I mean, normally I'd run a mile from that sort of stuff. Because ironically, when I was a kid, I'd watch tons of it and love it. And in the process of doing the film, I just thought, well, it's quite fun making cars blow up. It's quite good. It's actually, I'm quite into this, shooting people in the head. Then I can see why they all do it now, because it's quite fun. And it's funny, with you know, because it is ironic, it is sort of ironic, because it's sort of a bit of a nap story, isn't it? The, the, the feature, you know, the parallel story. But it was inspired as well by uh, 70s film posters. So I sort of uh, got some old posters and, and uh, started to really look at them. But then once again, you know, when you make a film, you care about all the characters. So it's that thing of like, Big Tony, the kids, Amber, you know, their characters, although they don't, they're not like based in reality, they are like cartoon characters. You know, I care for them just as much as the... In the moment, they're quite authentic. Yeah. They're sort of, it, it's not so much making fun of it as it is kind of... There's, there's sort of an attention to detail. I just played this race like yeah. with, with any other part of the story. And, and Dave Trigger Summer, you know, in tattoos. He's got, I mean, he looked amazing, you know, like computer generated almost. So... And he's the and my agent, his agent was saying he's the real McCoy. He's really like, and he was telling Milo, the actor, the boy, who 
great place the kids Milo Quinton is brilliant as well yeah. <laughs> he's, he's how to load guns and stuff like that shoot <laughs> things like this just thinking oh god you know but we shot that very quickly we shot it in a day in a blue screen studio the Camberwell Studios and uh, just shot it all with 70s I did one, uh, the Panasonic AF101 and two 7Ds. And we just shot with lots of cameras, all angles. And we didn't really slate it. We just went hell for leather, just shoot, 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 shoot for a day. And then cut, cut it together. So, in terms of the overall finished look, what can you talk to like the processors and combining well, yeah, we shot it all uh, 7D. Then, we, then uh, an editor called Justine Mice, who's absolutely brilliant, she cut my film Silence is Golden. And she also cut uh, The Last King of Scotland and uh, Touching the Void and all these films. And Justine was great, she, she edited it. We cut all of the blue screen. And then once we got the cut of that, we sent it to France, uh, to uh, ADV Studios, who who worked with uh, Matorda Minimi, who did Logo Rama and, and stuff, with Nic Nicolo Schmerker. And they had that as a blueprint, and then I did setups. And then what they did was, they sort of ran lots of filters to give, to give shadow passes, broke it down, did all the made 3D CGI backgrounds. Uh, I give them designs, they built all these backgrounds. And then I sort of, um, and then I hand traced, the trace line. So when you see the trace line and the drawing of the, the outline of the eyes, the head, that's all hand traced. So it took them months, it took them six months or more, seven months of full on work. Full on work, you know, just they worked so hard on it. So and it looks beautiful. You know the, uh, like you say it really the colour scheme yeah. is the way it comes to Oh yeah 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 but that was inspired by a poster for uh, a film called uh, 50s film called Violent Playground, which is set in the 50s, which is set in Liverpool in the 50s with Stanley Baker and Peter Cushing and David McCann. And it's like a 50s blackboard jungle type teenage hoodlum film. And it's always been one of my favourite films because it's always like set in Liverpool in the, in the 50s. So we spend hours looking at, you know, looking at the past, you know. But the poster was wonderful, you know. So it's sort of like inspired from that, really, the 50s poster. But, but it's just it's fun being able to just go to a super cliche world. And I think I can see why people love doing it. I wouldn't mind doing some more, actually. I wouldn't mind going to a Hitman movie. I'm available if anybody's out there wants to do it. <laughs> you mentioned you're working as part of the Oh, yeah, yeah. But well, that's um, a comedy blast for Channel 4. Is uh, I'm directing it and I'm doing it with producer Adrian Sturgis. Uh, and it's written by John Luke Roberts. Now, John Luke Roberts runs this uh, sort of um, comedy night in the Soho Theatre called the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society. And basically, it's like a society of comedians and it features um, Josie Long, Bridget Christie, Izzy Stuti. Tom Golding, Tom Bell, William uh, Andrews, uh, Alexis Dubry, uh, John Luke Roberts, and Tom Talk. And so basically, the idea of, the, of, of this, they have this like, night where they sort of do comedy that could fail, 
so they jump the airs, they go on, they do acts, they get lots of guests in as well. And they have all these spectacular nights in the Soho Theatre. The next one's on the 2nd of November. And it's so fabulously funny, really anarchic and fun. And so what they did was, they want, they wanted to do a TV version of it. But instead of transposing, it could have been like a, a film and a night of stand-ups or whatever. But, you know, but instead of doing that, they sort of come up with the idea that it's a boardroom meeting, a board meeting. So what it is, it's, it's um, they're all around the table doing a board meeting. And basically, the, burn, the, the, the building that they're in is burning down. So, but instead of dealing with the, the fire, they're in fact just talking cobblers. So it's quite surreal, it's quite like Python. And um, so it's like, a, it's in a way, it's like they're all in a boardroom meeting, but then, every, but then it, it cuts to um, sketches, and it's got animations in it as well. So 12 or 6 is doing some animations, so Phoebe Halstead and uh, Angie Phillips, and uh, so it's really exciting. I love the name. Yeah, well, the show is called ACMS Presents a board meeting, so it's a bit like it's a bit like the comic strip presents, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Is it in a way? Is it sort of capturing the energy of, say, the artists? Well, yeah, but they're quite. It's quite. Um, it's more surreal. I think it's more like um, Milligan, and it's been a lot of fun to do because normally I write and direct. It's been a real like, fun just to direct and then, you know, um, and just do that sound and just come in and just explore the performance and stuff. So, it's, so that's, I think that's on mid-October and it's going to go straight online and there's four five-minute episodes. And, and also, it's like a pilot, so E4, Channel 4, I put it online and, you know, and so everybody's going to watch it because we want a series of it, it'd be great to do a series. But it was such fun, I mean, it was just... So keep your eyes out for that mid-October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris has been an absolute Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for talking. No, it's all right. Anytime. That was Ben there talking to Chris Shepard at this year's Encounters Festival. One of Chris's films, which I liked, the first film I saw of his, which I still enjoy watching, was The Broken Jaw. Mm. It's one of his earlier works. But it's basically about a load of old people who, who frequent this pub called The Broken Jaw. And they return one day to find the landscape completely changed and the pub has become a fun pub, you know, for all these youths. Mm-hmm. And then they come back again. It's a wine bar. It's a great sort of comment on that whole... Because at the time, obviously, Witherspoon's becoming more popular and pubs changing and closing down and everything else. It was a... Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was a great film. I really enjoyed it. So if you can, check out The Broken Jaw. That's, I'd say that was one of my favourite uh, Chris Shepard films. Well, as you all gathered, he's a very busy fellow at the moment. Uh, keep your eyes open for The Ringer, as well as Life Class. You can find out more about 12 Foot 6 at 12foot6.com. Also, keep your eyes open for his comedy blaps piece, The Boardroom. The website is comedyblaps.channel4.com. His Random Acts shorts, including Anatole's Island, are at randomax.channel4.com. And the film club Bar Shorts can be found at barshorts.com. Go there for info on upcoming events. And, of course, he has his own site, which you can find at chrisshepherdfilms.com. Try and hold yourselves together, folks, because we've reached the end once more. 
Thanks to this episode's special guests, Chris Landreth, director of Subconscious Password. Again, check him out at chrislandreth.com and definitely have a look around nfb.ca for the fine work they do. Also, thank you to Chris Shepard, as well as the sites we previously listed. You can get the latest on his work via Tumblr at chrisshepardfilms.tumblr.com and you can also follow him on Twitter at chris underscore underscore shepherd. Double underscores, folks. Also, thanks to Christine Noel and Nadine Vio at the NFB, as well as Kieran Argo and Jude Lister at Encounters. You can read our coverage for this year's Encounters, as well as all our latest news, features, interviews, and the like at squiggly.com. The Squiggly Podcast is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell. It's presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. You can follow us on Twitter at Squiggly. You can follow Ben on Twitter at NL Mitchell. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell your friends, tweet it, Facebook it. However the kids like to spread the word these days. If you go to the main podcast page up on squiggly.com, you can also subscribe on iTunes. Then you won't miss a one. Hopefully we'll be back with another episode early November. Until then, stop slacking off, get some work done. Ciao.